Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. COVID-19 cases and hospitalizations continue to increase. Have you struggled with finding an appointment for a COVID test? That lag is expected to grow post-holidays. And now one of the state's major testing partners, Semaphore, has announced it's pulling out of COVID testing by mid-January. Coming up, we get the latest from the Connecticut Mirror's Dave Altamari. And later, we get an update on the process for residents to apply for a business license in the state's adult-use cannabis program. That's later. First, Christmas will soon be here. There's a holiday tradition dating back at least 80 years that brings people from all over to a small Connecticut post office in Litchfield County. Joining us now on the phone is Vera Rosa. She's a retired postal clerk at the Bethlehem Post Office. Vera, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now, if you live in Bethlehem, Connecticut, or have made a special trip there during the holidays, you can join us as well, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter, at where we live. So, Vera, I mentioned that people come from all over to the Bethlehem, Connecticut post office. Uh, There was a tradition that started there, I believe, more than 80 years ago, just to get one of uh, these cachets or decorative stamps. Tell us about how it all started. Well, in about 1938, the postmaster at the time, Earl Johnson, wanted to send a Christmas card to the president. So he designed a rubber stamp, which we all call cachets, in a very um, simple outline of a Christmas tree saying, greetings from the Christmas town, Bethlehem, Connecticut. And that was the first rubber stamp. And that's Number one, we now have 85 of them, and he uh, sent his card, and that was the beginning. It has gone on at least one or more were made every year since. And so when he first sent that out, people just loved this idea of a more personalized uh, greeting card with this message from Bethlehem, Vera? Oh, yes. It's um, amazing how many people come from all over New England, We get them sent in from all, actually all over the world, especially from collectors. They want, you know, the current postmark and they want the latest cachet stamped on their card and then we return it directly to them. But people from all over the country send them in in boxes or padded envelopes and ask us for specific cachets and they want a postmark. Sometimes we hold them for a certain date of mailing and you know, they go out and everybody seems very happy. It's just a fun experience. That's a lot of pre-planning to get those uh, those stamps from outside of Connecticut, Vera. Now, you've worked or did work there for 35 years. So can you describe what it was like in the month of December to work at the Bethlehem Post Office? Well, if we figure if you're not ready for Christmas and you work in the Bethlehem Post Office, if you're not ready by Thanksgiving, you're not going to be ready. Um you just start right at Thanksgiving, and it goes right up to Christmas. 
Uh, you work very long days, and it's a lot of fun because you meet people from all over. They're all happy to come. Um, it is very busy, but at the same time, the time passes quickly, and, you know, everybody's just really happy to come and be ready for Christmas. It's just a lot of fun. On our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live, we have a, a picture of some of those caches that have been designed. Can you describe some of them to us, ones that maybe stood out to you, Vera, and you know who designed them? Many of them are designed by Bethlehem residents. Some some are sort of art teachers or art actual, you know, professional artists, but many of them just regular um, residents of the town. Some are simple, like a star uh, radiating and says Bethlehem, Connecticut, or Merry Christmas. Some are very religious with a manger, you know, or that all the churches are represented. Um, then some are just like, you know, maybe a deer or a poinsettia. Um, you know, some are very simple, a snowman, a mailman. One of our carriers, Angel Cruz, designed Santa on a tractor, and it says Feliz Navidad. So there's just a wide range. And so people would come in to for for people that live in Bethlehem or the in New England, they'd come in, and all of these stamps would be on a table, and they would just be stamping the envelopes and just chatting with people. Vera, exactly. And there's usually two or three tables set up with all the different caches, and green green ink pads are out there, and. They can on the wall. We have a poster with all the 85 caches, so you can look up the number. Each one has a number on it, and you can pick what you'd like. And a lot of people like will bring a book, and they'll you know also copy them all, stamp them all in their notebook to bring, you know, to bring home. Um, grandparents will bring their grandchildren and tell you that their grandparents brought them 40 years ago, and so it's, it becomes a real tradition for people. Now, if you're listening and you've and you've traveled to Bethlehem to get one of these special cachets on your holiday cards, we'd love to hear from you, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. On the phone with me, Vera Rosa, who worked for 35 years as a postal clerk at the Bethlehem Post Office. Uh, Kathy tweeted, the best part of running a race in Bethlehem was visiting the post office afterwards to stamp her Christmas cards. And uh, that, I thought that was really a nice anecdote of Vera, people think, making a point to come out to Bethlehem uh, for this tradition. Well, they do um, every year. They run a, a road race, and then the the proceeds go to the local fuel bank. That sounds uh, really, really lovely. Uh, when we think about, uh, you'd mentioned uh, people would come out uh, and plan uh, even before Thanksgiving for these special caches. Was there a lot of disappointment? I understand uh, during the pandemic last year uh, that they weren't able to have these caches available. That's true. There was a lot of disappointment. We might have, uh, you know, if people brought them, we might have uh, done a little sneaking around and did them for them and promised them we'd mail them out. But we couldn't do much of that, and we had to be pretty careful. Now, you don't work there anymore, but did you make a point to, to get the caches this year? <laughs> I've already been there several times, yes, yes. So my children are counting down the days till Christmas. And for those of us who still are trying to get our, our, our holiday cards out, is it too late? Can people still go to the post office, Vera, for these special stamps? 
Well, I would say if you can go, we actually keep them out to the Epiphany in January. But if you wanted them to arrive for Christmas, I really say today or tomorrow at the latest for within Connecticut, if you want to get them there for Christmas. And if they want to plan for next year, Vera, can you repeat for those who can't actually get to the physical post office, the actual location, how they go about? Do they mail the cards a certain way so that they get the special stamp? Yeah, well, it's best if you have your postage on your Christmas cards already, and then you pack them either in, you know, like a shoebox or in a a padded mailer, and you mail them, and it's 34 East Street in Bethlehem, Connecticut, 06751, to the postmaster. Besides the the tradition at the post office, uh, there's a Christmas town uh, festival. Uh, So can you tell tell us a little bit about that, Vera, since you've lived in the town for so long? Sure. Um, Around 1980, there was um, a fire at the Memorial Hall, which is a town, you know, sort of public hall that, um, you know, we have big events at, or if you want to rent it for a reception of some kind, you can do that. But it was quite a really amazing old hall with a downstairs dining room and an upstairs sort of dance hall with a stage. But it burned down. And so in order to Uh, build a new hall they went around asking for donations and then the recreation director at the time Sue Schoenbeck decided to uh, create the Christmas festival so it's been going on for 40 years to and they still use the money the proceeds to defray the cost of running the hall. Uh, There's other communities that have uh, Christmas sounding uh, names, uh, but when you think about uh, your town of Bethlehem and just how it feels uh, more like uh, the holiday spirit uh, each year, Vera? Oh, we have a wonderful town at Christmas time. We have a beautiful uh, Christmas tree on the green in the center of town that's almost 100 feet tall, and they light it. They first lighting is the Friday night of the Christmas festival and they keep it lit all through the season last year because of COVID to try to lift the spirits of the town. They kept it lit right through February. It was really, really nice. I mean, I think it really helped people uh, get through last winter. Very much. Well, it was a pleasure to hear from you, Vera Rosa. Again, uh, Vera was a postal clerk for 35 years. It's still nice to hear that there's a a place that uh, people feel like they're really part of a community, especially around the holidays, Vera. Well, thank you so much for having us. And Bethlehem appreciates it. (laughs) You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Uh, Make sure you put it on your list uh, for next year to head to Bethlehem, Connecticut around the holidays. Uh, Now, coming up after the break, we're going to switch and talk more about um, some of the news happening in our state, especially news that uh, broke late last week that one of Connecticut's major COVID testing partners has announced it's pulling out of its contract with the state. We'll hear from Dave Altamari, investigative reporter at the Connecticut Mirror, right after a short break. You can join us, too. Are you scrambling to get a COVID test before the holidays? 888-720-9677. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Semaphore, a Stanford company, has been in the news over some questioning why the state contracted for COVID testing with the company that had also received funding from a venture capital firm managed by the governor's wife. The state ethics office says the governor and his wife did not violate any ethics rules. Now that company, Semaphore, has announced it's pulling out of its contract with the state to provide COVID testing. Joining us now with more is Dave Altamari. He's an investigative reporter at the Connecticut Mirror. Dave, welcome back to the show. Good morning, Lucy. How are you? I'm doing well. So this uh, story came uh, as a surprise to many. We're all thinking about how testing has peaked due to this latest COVID surge, uh, assuming that this uh, surge and uh, need for tests will continue post-holidays in January. And so um, tell us about this uh, this latest update that Semaphore has announced is going to pull out of the contract. What do you know? Yeah, they apparently informed uh, DPH uh, last Wednesday by email that they were going to stop um, <clears throat> doing the testing as of January 15th. Um, the state has 23 testing sites across the state right now, from Kent to Killingly to Stanford, uh, and Semaphore staffs 15 of them. So they are by far the biggest contractor there's three others that are doing some of the testing sites so the state in effect now has roughly three three weeks or so to figure out how they're going to staff those 15 um sites and then what lab is going to process the tests so what have you heard from the Department of Public Health or even the governor's office about uh, this increased need? I mean, who can step up to fill that in this short amount of time? I think they were so. Um, uh, I think clearly DPH was surprised that Semaphore <clears throat> um, uh, is getting out of it. Uh, the con- There's a little debate as far as how long the contract is for. Um, the state gave four companies contracts in July, um, Semaphore, uh, Ren Laboratories and Meriden, uh, Genesis and Quest. And all the other state contracts that I've seen for testing have always been for a year. And the state says this one runs until the end of June. So for them to leave in January is kind of catching the state certainly at a bad spot. Testing has tripled in the last two weeks, the number of tests that have been done. I'm sure they're going to be sky high 
the next few weeks with the holidays coming. So um, they need to figure out fairly quickly how they're going to do this. I think according to the memo that DPH put out the other day, they, I think they're going to see if their other three companies can pick up some of that slack. Um, but that may not be, they may have to try to bring in a, um, a fourth contractor to pick up some of these sites. Do, will the system, hospital systems have to step up to fill this gap? Uh, do they have, um, I guess I'm just wondering like what um, capacity uh, these major uh, healthcare uh, systems in our state have uh, to fill this void, Dave? There were 10, <clears throat> 10 uh, testing contracts, um, you know, uh, going back to last year that, that ended in July. Um, several of them were hospitals, Griffin Hospital, uh, Hartford Hospital, Yale New Haven. I don't know if they'll go back to them or if they'll try to find another private lab to possibly fill in. Um, the, 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 the hospitals obviously have their own situations uh, that they're dealing with now. Um, so it's, it's, I've only been to the Hartford site that Semaphore runs, but they always have eight, um, six to eight people on site doing testing uh, and a couple times that I've stopped by there. So, you know, it does take a significant amount of um, help of people to, to run the sites, let alone then actually, you know, do the tests themselves in, in a laboratory. Mm-hmm. So it would require, you know, two different things. Uh, someone that can put some bodies out into the field and then also have the capability to do all the lab testing. You're hearing Dave Altamari here on Where We Live. He's an investigative reporter at the Connecticut Mirror as we talk about news that one of the state's major COVID testing partners, Semaphore, based in Stanford, is pulling out of providing COVID testing by mid-January. You can join us if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Remind our listeners about this company, Dave, because they pivoted at the height of the pandemic to provide COVID testing when the state needed it most and, and when we when we when they notified dph in an email last week you know you know what's their take of why this timing works for them unclear um it's not a surprise that they're getting out of covid testing it's not just connecticut they're they've basically made a corporate decision um and in some of their filings they've they had indicated that they um expected to be done with COVID testing sometime this year and go back to their core business, which is genomic testing. Um, I think the timing of it is a little curious, um, especially from the state's perspective, uh, given where we are. Um, Semaphore, um, you know, got $15 million from the state, uh, from the Department of Economic Development um, to build their laboratories in Brantford and Stanford. And then the state gave them $25 million in COVID testing contracts um, during the, the height the, in, in 2020 during the height of the virus. So they did step up. Um, obviously, there's connections to um, Annie Lamont's um, venture capital firm that's an, a, a big as an investor in the company that's brought quite a bit of attention um, the last month or so. Um, who knows if that played anything into their 
decision to get out now. Um, there has been quite a bit of, we did a big story about a month ago, uh, laying out the whole, the whole connection and the whole uh, thing with Andy Lamont's company and their investments and when they invested and when Semaphore got contracts. Um, the governors had been questioned about it quite a bit recently. So, you know, they have been getting less than stellar publicity. Um, but uh, so the timing of it is definitely curious. Hmm. Yeah, when we talk about uh, the the story that you and your colleagues did at the Connecticut Mirror, looking into you know these questions surrounding uh, Annie Lamont's venture capital firm, uh, for listeners who may not have read that, can you just uh, briefly talk about you know, again the, the timeline and how the Lamonts have, have handled those questions? That's, a, that's hard to be brief, but I'll try. Um, <laughs> um, Annie Lamont um, is a managing partner in a uh, venture capital firm called OKHC. Um, they, they invested in um, Semaphore um, back in 2019. They were one of five companies, including Connecticut Innovations, the Connecticut's own venture capital group. Um, and then the, uh, when COVID hit, uh, the state was desperate for testing. Um, if you remember back to March and April of 2020, uh, people were waiting 10 days to two weeks to get their test results back, and they, they needed to speed that up. So they were looking for local labs that could fill that, could, could do it quickly. And Semaphore, to their credit, stepped up and and put in a, a request for proposal and was chosen along with 10 others, nine others to do COVID testing. Um, that they also then got a second contract to do COVID testing in nursing homes when the state upped, ramped up the testing, uh, decided to test every single nursing home resident because of how many people had been, uh, how, the, how the virus had devastated nursing homes. So they got $25 million in COVID contracts. Um, when they got the first contract, the governor's attorney notified Ethics that Annie was an investor in the company, Annie's company was an investor in Semaphore, that they had had nothing to do with them getting the contract, and that they would donate any profits to charity. Um, they then, the, one of the questions I've had on this is, after that, after so that after she became aware that the state had a contract with Semaphore, her company made a second investment in Semaphore. Um, this time there were eight investors, including some of the biggest on Wall Street. And then a few, about six months after that, Semaphore went public uh, and, so, uh, and sold for like $600 million or something to that, and is now a company worth well over a billion dollars. So their initial and so the initial investments of OHC eventually probably will um, be a significant uh, profit. Now Annie Lamont has said that they have not made any profits yet from their shares, and when they do, they will they will follow through and donate. She will donate any profits she makes to charity. 
You know, the, um, Governor Lamont has spoken out recently, especially because of your reporting, uh, Dave, and we're thinking about how they've handled uh, these questions. Do you think this, this story will continue to follow uh, Governor Lamont as he seeks reelection? Has he done enough uh, to answer questions that the public may have, including, uh, you know, the former candidate running for governor, Bob Stefanowski? Oh, I think they'll it'll definitely it's definitely a political issue now, Lucy, no question. It'll he'll get he'll get questions about it. Um, It's obviously an issue. The Republicans are, um, you know, going to keep keep hammering at it. I think I don't I don't see that stopping. it's curious that Semaphore has, you know, gotten out of the testing now. Um, the timing of it is is certainly curious, um, and we'll see what happens here. I mean, from the state's perspective, you know, we're heading into a situation where, with Omicron, they're going to need testing, and so they really need to figure this out relatively quickly on how they're going to replace them. Especially, especially when you hear, uh, you know, at-home uh, tests uh, aren't even available when people are trying to buy those. It's uh, pretty scarce. So we'll, we'll be watching this and looking forward to more of your reporting, Dave. Uh, thank you so much for coming on to explain, uh, you know, some of what you know about this announcement coming out of the blue that Semaphore was pulling out of the contract. And again, still a lot of questions about how the state is going to respond to increased testing needs in the next few weeks. Dave Altamari is an investigative reporter at the Connecticut Mirror. Thanks for your time today, Dave. Thanks, Wilson. You're listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. Coming up, the state's getting closer, another step closer, rather, to licensing social equity applicants to operate in Connecticut's adult-use recreational cannabis program. We're going to get an update after the break and answer your questions, too. 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Listening to Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Connecticut residents who want to start a business in the state's adult use cannabis program will have more time to apply for a license. That's just one of the recent changes approved by the State Department of Consumer Protection after getting a request from the Social Equity Council. Now, the council is tasked with making sure this process is fair and includes people from communities disproportionately impacted by drug policies. Joining us now with an update is Andrea Comer, Interim Deputy Commissioner for the Department. Department of Consumer Protection. She's also chair of this Social Equity Council. Andrea, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Lucy. Good morning. And so there was just a recent meeting from uh, by the, the Social Equity Council extending this deadline. So tell us about the deadline and, and how this will impact the process moving forward. Sure. The Social Equity Council you know, after receiving feedback from members of the community, wanted to ensure that there was um, sufficient information so that social equity applicants could get into this process um, eyes wide open. Um, 
the their request um, was to approve the criteria for social equity applicants um, under two conditions. The one of the conditions was an extension of the application window for 30 days. So from 60 days to 90 days. Um, the Department of Consumer Protection acknowledged and affirmed that request. The second condition was that the interim executive director, Ginny Ray Clay, provide a technical assistance plan. How are we going to get this information out to the community? Um, so she will be, she is working on that plan and will be presenting it to council members this week. Mm. And so now there's a 90 days uh, that you, that has been extended, right? Yes, that's correct. Mm -hmm. And so when we talk about technical assistance, uh, maybe put a finer point on why that's so important, because this application process seems pretty in-depth. Can you walk us through this? It is It is a very um, labor-intense application. Um, we want to make sure that when folks enter into this business, that they are doing so with the requ requisite format, right? And so... Who are your backers? Um, how are you? How are you structuring your business to ensure that it is in fact social equity? Um, and there are lots of there's so much documentation that has to be provided if you are a social equity applicant. Um, you have to provide proof of income. You have to provide proof of residency. So all of that information we are we are asking for um, as part of this application process. There are many folks who who are interested in getting into this business, but the cannabis industry is pretty unique um, in terms of whether it is where zoning, where you're going to locate your business, to how are you going to staff up and have a staff that is knowledgeable about this industry? Where will you get your, your capital and your finances from? So this is all built into the technical assistance plan, having some, some convenings um, primarily in those disproportionately impacted areas where we can walk through, um, hopefully with some partners, on what the application is, what the requirements are, what people need to be thinking about when they're thinking when they're considering getting into this business. When you talk about social equity, can you explain that the criteria even these applicants uh, uh, must meet uh, to be part of this this lottery system moving forward, Andrea? Absolutely. Um, in order to be confirmed as a social equity applicant, you have to have less than 300% of the median average household income. Um, and right now the state's median income is around 74,000, so under 225,000. Um, you also have to demonstrate that you have lived in a disproportionately impacted area for either five of the last 10 years or nine of the 18 years from birth to 18. And so what have you been hearing from the community? I mean, how many people, um, you know, have been calling with questions? And do you feel like, you know, with the way the legislation was written, Andrea, that, you know, when we think about this timeline coming up, that that's adequate, that, you know, we're, it's going to be moving at a, a pace that uh, people find satisfactory. I'm looking at a quote from another uh, social equity council member, Avery uh, Gaddis or Gaddis, who says, you know, he's really worried about, um, you know, it's not going to be perfect, but worried about some of these um, these uh, these timeline um, extensions. Can you can you talk about that, that concern? Sure. I mean, most legislation is arguably um, imperfect. It is the result of many voices and many constituents coming together for for a greater good. 
um, this, and the cannabis bill was no different. Um, there were many different in interests in, in standing up this legislation. Um, and Councilman Gaddis is absolutely correct. There is There are timelines and deadlines that are built into this bill that have been missed. Um, we have to balance the, the urgency of now with making sure that people have the information that they need. The bill itself is 303 pages. It is very, very um, intensive in terms of the documentation that's required, the information that's required. And so people have to understand whether it's from having a labor agreement to, you know, whether or not you can you can have a backer and then switch a backer, which you can't. Um, there's so many different components to it. So we we don't want um, and you know perfect to be the enemy of the good, but at the same time, um, we have a duty to our constituents to ensure that they have the information that they need. You're hearing Andrea Comer here on Where We Live. She's chair of the Social Equity Council, also interim deputy commissioner for the Department of Consumer Protection. As we get an update on this uh, process for moving forward uh, to have uh, people get a license to operate within the Connecticut's adult use cannabis program. If you have a question, you can join us 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Scott's calling in from West Hartford. Scott, what's your question? Hi, Scott. I mean, this is my name. Hi, Lucy. I'm calling for just two reasons. Is I'm concerned because the Social Equity Council has gotten together, and as far as I know, that there is only a few companies in Connecticut that are allowed to grow marijuana, CT Pharma, Cureleaf, um, a few others. And as far as I know, there have been open um, licensing opportunities for people of um, – of social or, you know, equity minority. My, my other question is, is, these people who want to grow and start in the industry in Connecticut, if big companies like Cureleaf, who are up and down the East Coast, have problems getting financing, how is Joe Schmo on the street supposed to get you know, millions of dollars backing if, if big companies can't even do it? Good question, Scott. Andrea? Yes, great question, Scott, and thank you for, for calling in. That is, you know, has been one of the things that keep, keeps me up at night from the very beginning is how to access capital. Um, I, have, I have gotten some information from some social equity applicants that they have been contacted by investors. We will have some startup cost assistance, but you raise a, an, an excellent point. This is an expensive business proposition. It is going to cost millions of dollars. Yes, will you, you know, is the potential there to multiply that investment? Absolutely. Um, there are no easy answers in terms of securing capital. Um, federally funded or federally chartered banks are reluctant to get into this space um, because recreational marijuana, recreational cannabis is not um, federally legal. Um, state chartered banks and credit unions may not have the same resources um, to provide to, to social equity applicants or those interested in, you know, as you refer to the Joe Schmoes um, getting into the business. So it's definitely a concern. My hope is that there are some investors out there. There are some well-resourced individuals um, out there who really do have an eye towards 
equity and we'll hopefully, you know, we'll, we'll be able to match.com with, with, with folks. It won't solve everyone's problem by any means, but I am hopeful that at least some will be able to get into this business and have the resources they need. When we looked at Massachusetts and their law that uh, legalized uh, cannabis, you know, how did they handle uh, this question of getting capital uh, to people so you don't have these big companies uh, controlling all of this? You know, it was it, they faced the same challenge. In fact, most of the states that have um, legalized cannabis have run into this issue in terms of resources. Um, there is there are a few national um, entities out there that are helping um, particularly social equity um, individuals who are interested in getting into the business. Um, the Minority Cannabis in Incubator is one of them. Um, and there are regional groups. The Block is one in, in Massachusetts that is mostly black and brown um, cannabis entrepreneurs, and they have made connections with investors. Um, it really is, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a scrappy endeavor. Um, and it takes a lot, a lot of grit. And I wish there was just a, a, a path that I could pave um, for social equity applicants. And it, it's just, it's just not there. Um, but we're working on it. Again, you can join us 888-720-9677 if you have a question about uh, the adult use cannabis program, uh, still uh, working on the process. Uh, and so I'm curious about, you know, how many licenses could be awarded and, you know, how that'll work uh, to make sure the social equity applicants are, are part of that. Yes. Yeah, so we will be um, releasing the number of licenses early next week. Um, it, it's an interesting calculus. Right. You want to make sure that there is not an oversupply um, or an undersupply, because the last thing you want is to award all of these licenses and then pe the people's businesses are not successful because the market is oversaturated. Um, but we anticipate releasing the full numbers publicly early next week. That's a strange time, right? With around the holidays. Can you talk about the timing there? <laughs> um, well, the timing, you know, if you go back to the legislation, the 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 criteria were supposed to be approved, I believe, in, in September or October. Um, so no one would have gotten um a, a a license list in their in their stocking stuffer, but we had to we had to be deliberate and we had to be thoughtful and um, my, my goal is to ensure that there is at least uh, a considerable comfort level among the council members as we proceed. Um, this, was, this was an extremely aggressive timeline. And so, um, but we'd rather get it as close to right as we possibly can. And if that means the timing is a little bit off, but you know, some people might appreciate the, the present of license <laughs> number information. I see what you did there, Andrea Comer. <laughs> yeah, and uh, here with us, the chair of the Social Equity Council. So you mentioned it's a weird calculus uh, to get to the, the, the number of licenses. So um, I'm just wondering if it, you know, can you give us an idea when we think about, you know, because there's so there's so much money to be made in this industry, you know, billions of dollars, you know, and a lot of people are interested. And so, you know, how many licenses would it, would it make sense for the state uh, to approve in this, you know, the first uh, round of this? 
Sure, and I'm glad you mentioned the rounds. So there will be um, four rounds of of lotteries with license types, with various license types, and those will be those will be staggered. There will be a separate license for a separate lottery for each license type. Um, they will, you know, and it will vary in number. For instance, there will be probably more delivery service licenses than and and food and beverage licenses than say there will be micro cultivator licenses or hybrid retailer licenses. And that really is um, our, our drug control division has spent a lot of time looked at other states, including Massachusetts, to try and balance what's the right what's the right number of each license type to mitigate for supply and demand issues. Again, if you have a question, it's complicated uh, thinking about how well, the state's going to be rolling out uh, recreational cannabis uh, in our state. Uh, who can participate in this business? Uh, now's the time to call in 888-720-9677. Andrea Comer is here with us, who's chair of the Social Equity Council and also interim deputy commissioner for the Department of Consumer Protection. And so we were talking about uh, timelines and when this law or this uh, proposal was going through the General Assembly, you know, thinking about, um, you know, it may be imperfect, as, as you mentioned, uh, uh, when this will all roll out, but considering uh, the process uh, up to date, up to now, you know, when could, could people see actual, you know, the business open in our state? So we're probably looking at 2023, I would imagine, when recreational sales become up and running. So again, we're having these, these staggered rounds of licenses um, and then those will be based on different license types um, it is you know and then there's a review process that takes several weeks there are you know the the various rounds and those social equity applications have to be reviewed both by the social equity council as what the social equity council team as well as um, the department of consumer protection so my guess would be sometime in 2023. Mm. And that's, uh, oh, I'm trying to think when the, the law passed, were people thinking uh, 2022 would be the year, Andrea? Um, there, there, I think 2022 was the, was the hope that that's when um, recreational sales will begin, but 2022 is when we will um, kick off this process. And if all goes according to plan, um, then it will be 2023. We've been talking a lot about equity, and you know, there's a lot of documentation that needs uh, to go through uh, the process uh, before someone is deemed, uh, you know, qualified under this particular part of the program. And that also means a, a purpose statement. So, can you talk more about that, Andrea? Yes, the purpose statement is really intended for us to get to the heart of, you know why you why social equity is going to be a commitment on the part of your of your business you know the war on drugs is has been one that has been going on since 1971 when president nixon first declared it and many of those communities continue to suffer the devastating impacts of that war and so the social equity council really wants to know that 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 knowledge and awareness um, is is embedded in the in the mission statement of of, of the business that that plans to launch, um, and really how they plan to you know 
we know what your what your goal is, and that's to stand up a business. We are very interested in the how. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the how, so a workforce development plan, so not just hiring someone uh, to be at the register of, you know, that's making right. sure, but thinking about, uh, I guess, being more intentional about how, who you're, you're hiring and what their, their purpose will be within the company, Andrea? Yes, for sure. So to your point, we don't want all the the social equity folks to be at the register or responsible for cleanup. We want to know what is your plan to not only recruit, but retain and upskill those workers so that they can, you know, this is really about wanting to see those disproportionately impacted communities better off. So what are the, what are the ways in which you as an employer can help those communities to be better off? Similarly to the workforce development plan, there's a social equity plan. How, what, is your, what is your vision for community reinvestment beyond the, the employment aspect of it? Is there a way in which you could partner with one of those communities to help? Um, I think that there are, the options are there. We are excited to hear um, the innovative ways in which businesses plan to, to do this um, with the goal of just seeing our, our communities um, improve and strengthen and sort of try and chip away um, at the impacts that, that have been the result of this war on drugs. Andrea, how often does the Social Equity Council meet? And I'm just wondering what kind of engagement you're getting from the community. Um, obviously, people are, are still interested in, in getting into the business, but in terms of, uh, you know, making sure that you are responding to concerns or questions or um, some barriers that might still exist, uh, as you mentioned, the legislation being imperfect. Yeah, so we have had, an, you know, we have a public comment portion um, at every meeting. We have also been out in the community um, having conversations. Most recently on the 13th, we were at Nuestra Casa to talk with um, those who attended, answer any questions they have. The NAACP has been a fantastic partner statewide um, in terms of creating space for us to have these conversations with community folks. And we've had a a conversation with the Black and Puerto Rican Caucus and extended an invitation to those members, you know, invite us, we will come to your, come to your district, talk with your constituent, constituents. Um, we may have to pivot a little bit to virtually given the, um, given the rise in COVID cases, um, but we are, we are committed. And if there is a group out there listening who would like to have, you know, the interim executive director and or myself and our council members um, visit and have a conversation with them. We are more than open to doing that. Meanwhile, we've seen how uh, some towns have responded uh, when this uh, law was passed, uh, saying, you know, passing moratoriums. Others are are interested. I know the town of Enfield, there was a moratorium and then a change with the council. And now they're embracing uh, this idea of permitting particular cannabis businesses uh, from operating. That's still all um, being worked out. But I'm just wondering, like, are you hearing also from municipal leaders and questions about um, how this will uh, come to communities or is that mostly a question for their uh, their lawmaker? Um, absolutely not. We have heard we have heard from the city of New Haven. Uh, we have had a conversation with their with their leaders um, in terms of 
you know, whether it was questions about zoning, whether it was questions about being able to provide information um, at the local level. Um, I know Hartford has been very proactive in terms of trying to be clear, we are ready for these for these businesses. Um, but there are some towns that have that have moratoriums and are saying, you know, I just want to sort of wait and see. Um, and then other towns that have outright said, no, this is not something we want in our communities. And I think that that's, you know, presumably responding to the voices of the of the folks who live there. Well, it's been interesting to hear again a lot of what's the work being done in the background uh, to get this uh, uh, up and running uh, in our state. Andrea Comer, as you mentioned, next week uh, the licenses, the number of licenses uh, that they'll be um, in this first round will be announced. Anything that we're missing that you think the public should know? I think the one thing I want the public to know is that I know that there are concerns. Um, someone had raised a concern around the license fees. And I want to be very clear, this is an expensive business proposition. Um, if there, if you are, if you are struggling to come up with the, you know, a, a license fee of a few hundred dollars, this business, they may very well be prohibitive for you. And I really want, because I don't, the last thing I want is to set people up to fail. And if we were to waive the license fees, then what happens when you have to provide your, your financial statements to demonstrate that you are ready to open up a business? What happens when you have to demonstrate that you have the ability to hire employees and secure a space um, for lease or ownership? How It really is something that folks need to think about. And that's one of the reasons why this technical assistance plan that our interim executive director is putting together is so important because we want to make sure that people again, are coming into this eyes wide open because we do not want people to come into this business and, and not be successful. We'd love to hear from you again, Andrea Comer, as this uh, continues Absolutely. to roll out. We appreciate your time today here on the show. Thanks so much, Lucy. Take care. Again, Andrea is Interim Deputy Commissioner for the Department of Consumer Protection and Chair of the Social Equity Council. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. We'll be back tomorrow. <laughs>